0: This can-do podcast is brought to you by Blake Albina Thoroughbred Services. Blake Albina is a full-service bloodstock agency and consignment company representing clients at every major horse sale in the country. For more information, call Ron Blake at 859-396-4836 or Hunsley Albina at 859-621-0800. Whether an experienced owner or a newcomer to the game, Blake Albina has the knowledge and experience to help you achieve your goals in the thoroughbred industry.
1: I got the horse right here. The name is Paul
2: Revere. And here's a guy that says if the web is clear, Can can do.
0: This is Bill Duncliffe welcoming you back to another edition of the Can Do Horse Racing Podcast, the podcast about all things horse racing, some history, some handicapping, and some humor. Before we start, I just want to provide you a little note about what we're doing differently this week. Our big score and guest handicapper segments are going to be separate downloads for this and next week only. In this edition, we're pleased to provide you with part one of two of our special Memories of Long Acres podcast. I've spent many more years than I care to reveal, or count even, being a passionate follower of this horse racing sport of ours. From my days at the old Weymouth Fair to today, I've been fortunate enough to experience the thrills and excitement of thoroughbreds, and standardbreds, truth be told, at outposts far and wide. Belmont, Tampa, Keeneland, the Red Mile, Santa Anita, Saratoga, Delmar, the Meadows, and the Meadowlands, to name just a few. I was even fortunate enough to have a client for a number of years in the Seattle area, which allowed me the opportunity to visit Emerald Downs. But even long before that trip to Emerald, seemingly everywhere I went, I had begun to hear memories and read stories about the track that preceded Emerald as the Pacific Northwest's premier racing venue, that being Long Acres Racecourse. Now, the role of racetracks that have closed over the years is, sadly, Legion. You think about names like Tropical Park, Hollywood Park, Rockingham, Bay Meadows, Lincoln Park, Exarben, Narragansett. The list is lengthy, and unfortunately, it's still growing. Time marches on. Progress is never pretty. Anyone who has spent any time on this earth knows that life can be rough and unforgiving. Heartfelt memories, loving stories, and humorous tales are welcome buffers we build and share against those sad edges of our existence. I can say with certainty, though, that in all my years I have heard more heartfelt memories, read more loving stories, and heard more humorous anecdotes about Long Acres Racecourse than of any other historical racing venue. I'm sure they're there as well about those other places, but none of them come up with the consistency of those associated with Long Acres. I've long been a history buff, and so when I started this podcast, I determined that one of the things I wanted to do with it was provide a vessel to talk about the history of our sport. And as I thought about that, I realized that there was one story I really wanted to dive into. That, of course, being the history of Long Acres Racecourse, and more specifically, what it is about Long Acres that causes people to still reminisce so fondly, now more than 25 years after its closing. So, over time, I reached out to connections both old and new to plumb their memories of Long Acres, and in my own small way... Bring a little bit to life this place that holds so prominent a place in many people's hearts. We're fortunate enough to have a variety of voices to talk about their memories of Long Acres with us on this special two-part podcast. Longtime jockey Joe Steiner, whose family has been intimately involved with racing in the Pacific Northwest right up to the present day, offered his thoughts. Vince Bruin, Director of Media Relations at Emerald Downs, who worked in publicity at Long Acres, provided us with many details and memories. Stephen Satis of Sadus Filmworks, who produced a wonderful documentary about Long Acres, tells us, among other things, how Long Acres got him his start in filmmaking. And finally, my old friend Harley Spring told us about working at Long Acres and how it shaped him as an adult. It was actually Harley who implanted the thought about doing this show a few years back. We were at the Belmont Stakes together with him and his lovely family, and he told me how he had grown up working around Long Acres. Of such small conversations, our large undertakings begun, and, at least for me, rewarding undertakings. So enough talking about a trip down memory lane. To paraphrase an old proverb, a journey of a thousand memories begins with a single step. So let's step out. Perhaps one of the strongest indicators of the pull that Long Acres still has today on those who remember it are Stephen Sadus's memories of Closing Day in 1992. The combination of Ken Burns' Civil War documentary and Long Acres passing into the history books inspired an entire career.
3: That was really on the heels of seeing the, the Civil War documentary come out, and I was in Los Angeles at the time. And uh, then I heard that the track was closing, and just, uh, you know, I had kind of grown up with all the stories of Joe Godstein and putting the track together. And so that became a huge voyage of discovery for me to tap into how it was done and also figure out how to make a documentary at the same time. And I think the most interesting thing is that I was working. At the track while I was doing the documentary on it, because there was still a couple of years that they had some grace period with Longacres Park. I mean, I remember sitting on the roof. I went to the very top of uh, the highest vantage you could get just to get a shot because I was filming on the last day of the race, and I swear I was just sitting on top of the roof and watching the last race at Longacres. And they had decided beforehand. Uh, Gary Henson the race caller. And he decided that uh, the very last race at Longacres, he would not do the race call. He would just let the horses go around the track. <laughs> so I was up there filming, and I uh, I, I couldn't stop from shedding a tear. <laughs> it was just a really powerful, powerful moment, and it, it kind of gave you right away a sense of loss, you know, while you were still there.
0: But well, let's go back to the track's origins. Long Acres was preceded in Seattle racing history by a racetrack called the Meadows, which is now part of the south end of Boeing Field in Seattle. Ironically enough, Boeing figured prominently in the disappearance of Long Acres more than half a century later, but we'll save discussion of that sad day for later. Long Acres grew out of the singular vision of Seattle native Joe Gottstein. After being a driving force to re-legalize horse racing and pari wagering in the state of Washington, he drove the building of Long Acres in record time. Vince Brune brings us back to its roots and the impact it has had on his life. Vince also reminded us that as a Western state, when the West was still the capital T, capital W of the West, horses and horse racing was part and parcel of the culture.
1: It was a hell of a place in my life it had a profound impact. And then Washington, you know, is a Western state, so we have quite a history with equine horses, right? It was uh, especially in the 30s, 40s, people had contact with horses. It was Part of culture or whatever. Now we've drifted away from that, but Washington, you know, uh, going way back as a western state, people were culturally aware of horses, and I think that was another factor in uh, in racing thriving in the location.
0: Joe Steiner, whose family was a fixture at Long Acres and has remained so at its successor Emerald Downs, echoes Vince's point about the relevance of horse racing in the sporting world at that time.
4: It was a lot more acceptable and people were a lot more open to the racing world than they are now because most people had a horse and there were tough times and, and horse racing was a really, everybody seemed to just be involved a lot more.
0: Once the enabling legislation was passed, Joe Godstein got to work executing on his vision.
1: The old racetrack before it was called the Meadows. It's down where Boeing Field is down now, just south of Seattle. But gambling was outlawed in, I believe, 1903 or 1905. So for some 30 years, there was no legal gambling in the state of Washington. But when, uh, I believe, Clarence Martin was the governor who signed uh, legislation that made it legal again, and Joe Gottstein announced the racetrack would open on August 3rd, 1933, and amazingly, had it built in I believe 29 days and uh, of course this would have been during the depression years so there was many men out of work and looking for work so there was no problem finding people to do the work in fact if someone wasn't cutting it there was five people ready to replace them supposedly so in about four weeks the whole place was built architect named b marcus Pratica, uh designed the grandstand and it was carried out rather sensationally and amazingly Amazingly fast.
0: And I, I, the architect who you mentioned, I believe, he's actually a well-known and well-regarded architect of uh, theaters and entertainment facilities. Correct? Uh, some of which are still around.
1: That is right. Yes, uh, much of Seattle, I, with the Coliseum Theater, many other famous buildings in and around Seattle, are all. Designed by uh, Marcus Patika. And for many years, it was a stakes race at Long Acres, the B. Marcus Patika Memorial. Oh. Yeah, and of course, he, I believe, was a business associate of Joe Gottstein. So Mr. Gottstein hired Patika to design the outline of the track, and it was modeled the name Long Acres. Joe Gottstein, an avid racing buff, had gone overseas and had visited Longchamp, the famous race course in France. And that's where the name Long Acres came from.
0: Stephen talked about Longacres as being somewhat of a metaphor for the city of Seattle and its evolution.
3: Longacres was kind of a metaphor for Seattle. In my mind, it was a big track, but then you take a, you know, a step back and you realize just how small and insignificant a track it is. I mean, it's just nothing when you look on the national stage. But you had people like, you know, Maury, who was like the president of the Philbred Racing Association, or you had the, the, the mile, which was always one of the bigger curses in the country. And so, you know, like Seattle, we don't have the largest population here, but we're held a lot more well-known than, let's say, Columbus, Ohio. You know, we've got a bigger population. And I think Long acres was like that. It was just a small track that had some notoriety. And Maury and Joe did a great job bringing up people like, you know, Johnny Longdon and Eddie Arcaro and different people to the, the mix that made it bigger than, than it was.
0: You can't meet anyone who had anything to do with Long Acres who doesn't bring up, almost immediately, the beauty of the track, the uniqueness of its setting, and the key part its location played in its growth.
4: The atmosphere of that, the setting of that track was this beautiful. It had these tall trees around there. You can see pictures of it if you look. Beautiful tall trees all the way around the track, and then in the background, you have Mount Rainier, stunning, stunning views. I guess
1: foremost was it was it was a a very beautiful place physically and the interesting part about that is the location is it's south of Seattle about halfway between Seattle and Tacoma so it would be what about 12 miles south of Seattle and it was in a very urban area especially you know when it was built in 33 but if the area hadn't really grown up the biggest shopping mall in the northwest was one mile away but yet If you were on the ground, you would never have known that. It was like uh, an oasis. It was very lush, very green. It was green by poplar trees. It was quite spectacular, the setting, the the view of Mount Rainier. And, of course, the racing at that time originally would begin uh, when the track opened had a pretty short need it would go from august just past labor day but it eventually were for many many years of its existence it would open up about memorial day and then go through labor day so it was pretty short season but those were the beautiful months in seattle if you've ever been to the northwest those july and august around here are spectacularly beautiful you know we have a well-deserved reputation for being wet and rainy and gloomy and gray but not during those months and racing would typically be run during those times. So you combine the beautiful location with the beautiful weather and the beautiful upkeep of the plant, you know, and you had a a very unique and beautiful setting. First time visitors there, we'd frequently hear, wow, we had no idea this place was so beautiful. And it it really was, and I think that was a key to it, was just the, the physical beauty
0: yeah, it's interesting, Vince, the trees that ring the track were very unique and distinctive and really elegant air, I think. Can you talk about that?
1: Yeah, they are called the Lombardi poplar trees. They're very narrow, statue-like trees, and they've especially the south end of the racecourse, and those supposedly were planted by none other than Joe Gottstein himself. The founder and the original investor, they got to put up all the money to build long acres, planted them himself and apparently Joe was an avid gardener, a golfer, an outdoorsman, and like so many other things in his life, he had a vision of those trees being at the racetrack, and they turned out to be very beautiful, another elegant feature of the racetrack.
0: Stephen Sadus echoed that theme of the beauty of Longacres and its setting.
1: You know, there are
3: just few racetracks in the country that have the setting that Longacres did. You had the poplars ringing the track and the Mount Rainier view in the background, and they just did a phenomenal job of adding flowers to the infield. And every time I recall going there, it just always felt like you were going to a park.
0: Harley Spring captured what the sporting scene was like in Seattle in his younger years and expounded on some of the factors that captivated multiple generations at Long Acres.
2: Yeah, Bill, I think at least from my perspective and growing up at the track, going as a kid with my grandparents and parents and going with my dad a few times and then being able to work there for almost five years uh, through high school and somewhat of college, you know, it was just, it was a landmark, you know, if you think about Seattle at the time, you know, in the 70s and the 80s, you know, professional sports were just starting with the Mariners and the Seahawks, really the only game in town was the Huskies. University of Washington was pretty much you know the, the sports hub. Uh, you had the Sonics that had just taken off in the early 70s but you know so you had professional sports and you had the college but you know really long ago, it covered everyone right it covered the mathematics who I think they knew the uh, form better than anyone else to the blue collar guys that got off the semi lines at Boeing and came over and the shift ended at 3 o'clock and got there for daily double at 3.30 right Yeah, you know, it really was a hub and, and also was located. I mean, it was down at the intersection of the two major freeways. It was close to Boeing at both the Renton Plant and the Kent Plant. So you had two different huge Boeing locations and you're 10 minutes away from the airport. It was a great location and, and you could draw all types of people into that.
0: Perhaps it was because of its somewhat isolated outpost in the Pacific Northwest, but even what are just part of the routine at every track felt special at Long Acres.
3: There was, you know, all these rituals that you would see every day. And, you know, for me, I'd never been to any other racetrack. And I just thought it was special to Longacres. But it's like, I'm sure they all have the parade deposed of the tracks. And the, the jockeys all come out and line and get weighed. And, and all these other things that happen. And the bugle call and everything. I mean, the it, it, experience it, it just made it feel like it was like, oh, this is, this is really special. You know, maybe that's part of it, too. Like, it lived on the East Coast. You had an opportunity to go to three or four tracks within uh, a 45-minute drive, but not here. That was your whole horse racing experience.
0: Any horse racing fan knows that with the exception of some ultra-modern racetracks, the facilities are usually a crazy quilt of large rooms, small warrens, and more nooks and crannies than an English muffin. Like many racetracks over the years, the facility expanded as the audience grew. Walk us through when someone walked into the park, what they saw, and the facility, and how everything looked from the grandstand.
1: Yeah, right. It was the more traditional racetracks back in, uh, in the days now. You know, if you picture like a Santa Maria or a Hollywood Park or an aqueduct, the, the tracks were built spread out. That is, like the grandstand would expand, expand from like the 8th pole to the finish line. They're a modern way now to do it is to build up rather than out because you want to concentrate everything by the finish line because you don't have nearly as many people on track in the days of, of simulcast wagering and so forth. So it was a very long grandstand, which was added onto several times. They added a north grandstand in 1982. There was a paddock club addition, which was literally built right over the paddock. So the paddock was underneath a multi level exclusive club which was attached to the turf club and it was very elegant. It had more nooks and crannies than just about any racetrack I've ever
0: seen. Stephen also commented on the layout of the facility. So you
3: had this odd collection of buildings that were sort of stitched together and I always thought it was kind of interesting that you could walk from let's say the program office which was on the north end all the way to essentially the, the paddock and you could almost do it you know, entirely underneath the track through a odd labyrinth of uh, going behind the mutual lines and underneath the building and then through this. And so the structure itself, there was the old wooden stands, there was the new gazebo. So it was kind of a mix of, of different elements, almost like a a home
1: that you kept adding on to. In the Turf Club, it was the place to be or be seen in the Pacific Northwest on a weekend. It was almost impossible to get a table in there. It was all the movers and shakers in the Seattle business community and the Seattle society would be at the racetrack on a weekend.
0: In building Long Acres out to his singular vision, Joe Godstein was certainly not afraid to be innovative.
1: It had a very modern speaker system, so you could easily hear the calls of track announcer Gary Henson, before that his father, Harry Henson. And it was the first place to use video patrol in 1971. So there was closed circuit television monitors everywhere. And this was, you know, before technology really had run. So I, you know, credit to Joe Gotsi and Moriel Haddock. They were very progressive in the advent of technology at a racetrack where, you know, some tracks have reputation for being anti-technology of course, in those days, there was no such thing as a you couldn't use a phone or whatever. Well, it was a different era, to be sure. I don't know if I've explained it, the physical part of it that well, but there certainly in the air, there was a very electric feel every time you walked into that place. It was a happening.
0: You, you mentioned, Vince, that Long Egress was the first track to use film patrol. I think I saw also that Long Ager's was the first track to use the electric starting gate.
1: I believe that's true, yeah. Clay Pewitt you've ever seen starting dates, a lot of them have that P-U-E-T-T on them. Yeah, I believe he designed uh, the first one ever that was, I'm not quite sure the year it was, but that is true. It was in use at, uh, at Long Acres, I want to say in the year like 1936 or 37, around then.
0: Everything from the top floor of the grandstand out to the racing surface was focused on producing a top quality racing product. The racing surface at any racetrack is always a subject of heated debate among patrons. Joe Steiner talked about how the track surface itself played for jockeys in their mouths. Hey, Joe, you and I talked about the video that Stephen Sadis created, the the Miracle Strip, and it was a very fast surface, correct?
4: Yes, it was. It was always a fast track. They, it was a dirt. It's a dirt track, and it's always played fast. And we get a lot of rain up there, so it's, the guys that the surface was always good whenever I rode there, and it handled all the weather and. You know, when it was fast, it was real fast. So they've had some track records up there and world records, I believe. But it's, it was always a nice surface up there. I, I mean, I always, I always never really, wow. Well, this is a bad track. It, it handled everything.
0: Of course, any place built with a singular vision is likely to have some singular features as well. So, Vince, when I've looked at aerial shots of the track, I believe I saw a swimming pool behind the tote board um, in one uh-huh. of the shots that I saw. What, what, what was that all about?
1: Yeah, not not only did Mr. Godstein found and put up the money to have Long Acres built, yes, he also had his house right behind the tote board. And there was the aforementioned swimming pool back there. And him and his wife, Luella, lived behind there for many years. He'd go down to Santa Anita for several months every winter. But, yeah, the house was right there.
0: Such was the vision of an attachment to Long Acres unique to Joe Godstein. He made his home there. Even the stars of the sport were struck by the uniqueness of those living quarters sheltered behind the tote board.
3: Eddie Artero came into Seattle for a Acres Mile one time, and it was in the middle of the night that he came in, and so he stayed at the Godstein house. And apparently he got a phone call in the morning, and he wakes up, and they ask him where he is, and he says, I don't know, but they have the biggest backyard I've ever seen.
0: (laughs) As I said earlier, the attention to detail manifested itself everywhere.
1: The Longacres art collection was one of the most extensive in all of racing.
0: Much of that famous art collection was actually in Joe Godstein's house.
1: The inside of the house was full of beautiful equine art, really quite spectacular. And I know the last three years when it was called, or the last two years, it was called Long Acres Park after the sale to Boeing, uh, Lonnie Powell, who came in, was the general manager of the final two years, him and his family lived in there.
0: Even after Joe Godstein's death, Murray Al his son-in-law, continued to emphasize the track's art collection.
1: Murray Al managed Long Acres, half Joe Godstein's death in 1971 was very much an art fanatic and was involved in uh, many art commissions and committees around the Seattle area. He really, that was one of his things, acquiring art for the racetrack. And it was, again, that was one of the things that just enhanced the place, you know, added a, a touch of elegance in class. It seemed like everywhere you turned around in there, even in the the general public area, you'd see uh, some equine art on display. So it was it was very much
0: a priority. The ambiance that the presence of artwork throughout the facility projected captured everyone's attention, as Stephen commented.
1: It was steeped in its
3: history. The art and, and the history, I think, was a huge part of it. I just remember being in the grandstand area underneath where the mutual lines were, and you know, you'd look at these huge portraits of horses that won a triple crown or a mile, and, it just rang of a different time, and in the art in the clubhouse and in the turf club was just unparalleled. It sort of brought out you know, the beauty and the history of the track, and it, it, it was an important story for, I think, the family to tell uh, when people came to the track. And so it was like walking into a home and seeing family pictures on the wall. You know, it had a feeling that it wasn't just a money-making establishment. It was a place to enjoy the day.
0: It's always interesting as well how the smallest details can bring out the deepest feelings.
3: The warm wood just made it feel like, you know, history was living. It just it gave you that feeling of being at an old ballpark, you know. There was just a lot of ghosts that lived
1: there.
0: It's important to note how the work of Muriel Hadoff, Joe Godstein's son-in-law, continued in preserving and extending the unique environment that was Long Acres.
1: It
3: was his effort that made the Turf Club restaurant one of the best restaurants in all of Seattle. So you could go there and not just for the gambling, but people used to go there and meet just for dinner because it was one of the best restaurants in town. And that was kind of Maury's stamp on place was giving it so much character and accessibility to different people. Maury was just a huge traveler. He was a huge connoisseur of food and wine. He loves art. And you know he would have these different different recipes that he would bring in, or he'd, he'd go to his favorite restaurants around the world and he'd bring them back to Longacre. It just you know it, it's the same thing. It's like when you go there, you got something a little special, a little different, and it's not just your basic applebee's in a racetrack. There
0: are some really special uh, elements to that whole environment. Harley pointed out that there was an emphasis on satisfying a wide breadth of culinary options.
2: I have fond memories of going there with my grandparents. It was very special, great atmosphere. But it was also the, the dollar hot dogs, you know, for as long as, as Lawn long as Curse was running, you know, the dollar hot dogs was always a staple. And, yeah, it sort of goes back to that family atmosphere. I mean, you could go there and, and get your hot dog and beer and program, you know, it was five bucks, right? It wasn't, you know, 25 bucks before you even walked into the place and started gambling.
0: Perhaps, again because of its somewhat isolated outpost in the Pacific Northwest. A uniquely close family environment enveloped everyone at Longacres in its grasp.
4: There were a lot of families involved. I actually heard that with like Delaware Park and some other tracks East Coast that were for families that that were close like that. But for us on the West Coast, that was what it was in the Northwest. And and it's just amazing the history and, and the story that my grandfather shared and the way that life was back in the days when they had uh, gravel roads and they would drive from that circuit in Seattle to San Anita to Caliente, Mexico to New York to wherever. I mean it, it circuits back in the day and the way these guys operated it just it is what it was and now we have these big roads and airplanes and changed a lot.
0: You know you, you talked about that one time when we were talking too about kind of like a traveling caravan when Long Acres was dark right and I suppose that I think you're saying it contributed to the family atmosphere too cuz the people would kind of go in groups to the next circuit right where they were racing so they all kind of traveled together and so you get to know each other right
4: Exactly and you know my grandfather would they would ha- they lived in a trailer they would go and park at the next track and I remember him saying that they would they'd have one door open on one end of the trailer and the other on the other side and they would they'd go dove hunting and make dove stew and then people would walk through their trailer and he'd feed the backside and or his friends
0: from his perch on the front side, Stephen was also able to capture the family environment that Joe commented on in the backstretch community. I can't speak to this too deeply,
1: but the backstretch is also, you know, a very, very unique group of people
3: that they led sort of a carny life of heading down to other tracks and stuff. But a lot of them that raced that at Long Acres lived in that area. And, you know, while they went to different places, Coming back when you know when the season opened at Long Acres, it was it was coming home, and so I think for everybody on that side, there was just this feeling of we're going to go away to Portland Meadows or Yakima or what have you, but we're coming back home come April to September. So that didn't translate so much on the front side, but it had its own sort of culture back there.
0: Front side and back side, there was a real neighborhood feel to Long Acres. Many
1: of the mutual clerks, I know we had so many like um, high school basketball coaches and referees who would be mutual clerks during the summer there. That was the summer job.
0: Harley remembered that also. Yeah,
1: high school teachers, you know, with the math, see them
2: down doing the mutual windows, right? Yeah, and <laughs> so you take a test during the day and you'd be down there and see your teacher uh, at the mutual.
0: Harley also reflected on the generations of fans and workers that came back to the track year after year.
2: You know, I think from a working standpoint, my experience here, I started out as a sweeper, so I got to see that whole part of the the building and operations and having to clean all the bathrooms and stuff. But it's just, you know, you had multi-generation people, both as visitors to the track on a daily basis, especially on the weekends, two to three generations was not uncommon. But then, you know, from a working standpoint, definitely you had multi-generational families working, My second job was actually working in the prep kitchen doing the slicing for the meats for the counters out that were selling sandwiches, and everything was still done by hand, and and, the lady that worked there, her husband, was one of the handicappers that Stephen's talking about, that he made his living selling his handicapper thing. It was fascinating, right? You know, people, that was their life, and, and it was fantastic. And then from a working standpoint, you had a lot of high school and college kids, all from the area, so everything up from Bellevue and, and Seattle down to Canton, Auburn, and Puyallup, and, yeah. uh, and a lot in Renton. So you know, you met you met a lot of people, and and they came back year after year. That was probably the best part. Was wasn't just a one-year job. And, you know, people came back for two, three, four, five, you know, ten years running.
0: That family environment was a very conscious part of the ethos that Joe Godstein and the Alhadavs brought to Long Acres.
2: It really was a a total community. Everyone knew someone, right? You didn't go to the track and not know someone or not recognize someone that you hadn't seen before. Management was accessible. I mean, you know, Maury used to walk around, but also Kenny and Michael would be walking around and talking to people. And that part also gave that comment that Stephen said about Joe and just that whole, you want to make it a family and you want people to come back. I mean, that was the whole thing was, you
3: know, you wanted people to be a destination spot.
0: Stephen felt it also.
3: I think that the family took a great deal of pride in the presentation, and it wasn't just a calculation of
0: who was betting and how much they bet. It was just creating a a beautiful environment. Like many things across our culture these days, even the racetrack experience has in many ways become homogenized. The crowds have dwindled, of course, as simulcasting has taken hold. Many different options now beckon the entertainment dollar, and the Runyon esque characters of Yore are just that, of Yore. And maybe that, along with their absence these days and the other changes in society, makes many remember the character of Long Acres and the characters who patronized it so wistfully.
1: One of the first things I noticed when I first started going to the Long Acres with a brother in the 1970s was. The amazing array of people, anywhere from the richest of the rich, to the poorest of the poor, and everyone in between was at that place. And it made for a fascinating uh, people-watching experience. And of course, in those days, you know, the on-track crowds were big, not only at Long Acres, but everywhere. And it was just, you really felt like you were someplace when you were there. Like I say, a a lot of high society, the who's who of Seattle, that was the place to be, particularly on weekends and especially on Sundays, which in the Northwest many racing facilities have Saturday as traditionally the big day. Well, in, in in Seattle, it was always Sunday was the big racetrack day. Saturday, of course, was important, but the big biggest stakes events uh, were always on Sundays, and the biggest crowds were always on Sundays. And it was really it was a happening to be at that track. And you know, if you've ever looked at old photos, it was, eras were different. People got dressed up to go to the racetrack. The clothes you would see people wearing was just, I mean, that stood out to me too. You'd see some really (laughs) amazing, amazingly colorful outfits, garish colors, but that was the 60s and 70s, you saw a lot of that. And certainly men with hats and ties were very much in evidence throughout that era too.
0: The Longacre's crowd, in many ways, shattered some of the popular misconceptions of racing patrons.
1: Senator Magnuson was a, a
3: huge patron there, and Maury and he were pretty close, and that began with Joe Godstein. And so it just became a power hub, too. You know, the trip club was just this place where a lot of deals were made, and, and that added to, the, added to the
0: mystique of the whole place. Vince, I'm sure the memories that Long Acres brings about for people, I have to believe in some part has to do with the community and the characters that were around the track. Because every track has them, right? Especially, I think the racing's become a little bit more corporate, so character maybe is not around as much. But I, I would imagine there was a, a fun cast of characters around. Can you tell us about a few of them?
1: Yeah, sure. Some of these people, I wouldn't even know their names, but there was, like you say, they were we had our share of characters. One who comes to mind right off the top of my head would be a gentleman named uh, Vernon Wiles, or commonly known as Buster Wiles. He was a jockey's agent, and then later the placing judge. He'd be in the winter circle every day wearing amazingly colorful suits, but he had quite a background. He was Harold Flint's stunt double, and he kind of ran with him in Hollywood during the... 30s and 40s and he had a million stories and he was great with the kids out in front of the winter circle giving them candy and spinning yarns and uh, just you know another very colorful character so many of them I remember a guy called Apples I never knew his name he sold apples at the track some of these people I still see in my dreams even though I could never tell you what their actual name was but yeah Frank Lucarelli's father Frank's a prominent trainer now his dad Mike would always be the first one into the racetrack and he was boxed at Long Acres every day. Uh, Lindy Allen at the Clerk of Scales was another character. Very nice, ran a tight ship at a Very out front with the public and good at dealing with people. You know, so many people like that. Gary Henson, the track announcer, was really popular.
0: Stephen reflected on how, like at any privately owned institution, closeness to ownership brought certain benefits.
3: Working there, as Harley was mentioning there's so many different teachers there, but the other fun part was there were always these sort of arrangements because the track's doctor was a fellow named Dr. Greenstein, and he was also the University of Washington Huskies doctor as well. So you would have all these former and current Husky players working at the track, and some of these jobs were just like, sitting at a gate and stamping people's hands as they came in and out. It was like the most minimal job. I just remember there was this one guy, there was a, remember Boone Kirkman? Harley, do you remember him? Yep, I do. So apparently, you know, he was like a boxer, and there was, a, there was just some mystique about all these different people that had these different lives that uh, were working there, and it was all these different relationships.
0: One of the more legendary sporting characters and amazing career arcs at Long Acres belonged to Junior Coffee, University of Washington star football player, champion with the nineteen sixty five Green Bay Packers, and then longtime renowned horse trainer at Long Acres.
3: You know, even like uh, Junior Coffee and that, Yeah, yeah. I mean these are people's names that you saw, you know, and heard about, you know, while watching a husky game and then to see them, you know, stamping people's hands on the turf club or something was, was kind of fun. Coffee, but he became a really big trainer. Oh, yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah, and, and you know, that, that was the amazing part, right? Yeah, you know, it's just, yeah. And he then he owned some horses as well. And, yeah, it was pretty interesting watching you know, his career there because he really did have a career there. I mean, by the time he started, he's leased there at least 20 years.
3: Yeah, you know, it's kind of interesting. Junior Coffee is one of those fellows where it's like, I imagine a lot of former athletes could have had great careers as trainers because they just kind of understand, you know, in terms of picking out horses and then or understanding the regimental or what they're up against. It's just that whole mindset that I'm just surprised there's not a lot of other former athletes. It's a tough bridge to cross, but they have the right mentality for that career, you know, as a trainer.
0: One tends to figure out as they get older, lessons can be learned in many different places. Harley and Stephen both talked about how working at the track opened up their eyes to the world beyond the one they had grown up in to that point.
2: Yeah, for me, you know, coming out of a neighborhood school and all your friends were in the neighborhood, you go work down at Law you know, you had all these people from other high schools and other, you know, lifestyles and, and different backgrounds and just, it really made you open up and be aware. I think a lot of times Maybe college will do that to some level, but not really. I mean, I think a lot of times college is, you know, as close you go to, you're around people similar to you, and I think this really attracted all sorts. You know, you got to experience a lot of different backgrounds, and, you know, it's interesting. Is you know, 20, 25 years later, I still run into people now in professional life that, you know, we used to work together, and it's pretty fascinating, you know, how you cross and how you get there, but,
3: yeah, it was, to me, it was a great melting pot, basically. I would echo all those things. I grew up in a uh, pretty white, homogenous suburb of Seattle. And so it was just a great exposure to all different types of people from all walks of life just the exposure to the different characters of the track, you know, you can't buy that kind of, and like, you know, like Harley said, you know, you, you go to college and you're still surrounding yourself with more people that are similar to you, but nothing was like the melting pot of the track. And at, at some point I, I it's still sort of a dream of mine, but I always thought there should have been like a sitcom, not unlike Cheers or something like that based at a racetrack, because you just had so many different people from all different walks of life. And, different stories. I mean, everybody had a story. He was out there.
0: Thanks for joining us for part one of our Memories of Long Acres. In part two next week, we'll remember some of the fondly remembered horses and horsemen who left their mark at Long Acres. We'll hear about the track's signature race, the Long Acres Mile, and our contributors will share their memories of the stunning news of the track's closing. Join us next week for that. Here in the,
4: the telegraph For Paul, Rivera i he I hear his foot's alright Of course He's it all deep. The horse he heads
2: heads of has red Last night I know it's foul